Every single time I close my eyes and I don't read the words, I mess everyone up singing. And so uh, I do apologize, but that's all right. I invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to the book of John, chapter number 6. The book of John, chapter number 6. The book of John, chapter number 6. And we will begin our reading in verse number 24. John 6, verse 24. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, neither his disciples, they also took shipping and came to Capernaum seeking for Jesus. And when they had found him on the other side of the sea, they said unto him, Rabbi, when camest thou hither? And Jesus answered them and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Ye seek me not because ye saw the miracles, but because ye did eat of the loaves and were filled. Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you. For him hath God the Father sealed. Then said they unto him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. Then they said therefore unto him, what signs showest thou then, that we may see and believe thee? What dost thou work? Our fathers did eat manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. Then said they unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. But I said unto you that ye also have seen me and believe not. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that every one which seeth the Son, and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word to our hearts. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the word of the Lord. It is quick and it is powerful and it pierces to our very heart and soul this morning. God, I pray that you give me that unction, that function of the Spirit to preach and proclaim thy word. I pray that my teaching and my preaching would not be with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that this church's faith would not stand in the wisdom of a man, but in the power of God. How we pray, O oh God, that Thou wouldst come and minister to our hearts today, and give us what we need from the Scriptures, for we ask it all in Christ Jesus' precious and holy, sovereign, majestic name, the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. I want to draw your attention this morning, particularly to verse number 37 of the text in which we've read, where we see the words of Christ, where He said, All that the Father giveth me, shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out." It was a cold winter's day in northern Maine, and I find myself sitting with a man that was a retired state trooper in front of his wood stove, listening to the crack and popple of wood as it was ablaze. He then turns to me and he says this, Pastor, is it possible and can I have assurance of salvation? Little did I know that I would meet with that man once or twice a week for two years, praying and showing him from Scripture how he can have an assurance of faith. And maybe you are even here today or you're listening and you're asking the same question today as well. 
Oh, you might not outwardly say it to anyone because you want to look so well on the outside. But inside you really wonder, am I really converted? Do I really know Christ? Or is this all a game? Am I, out, am I just deceived? Do I have this assurance of faith? And you might be lacking that assurance. And you might say, what person takes two years to gain assurance of faith? Let me read to you the Westminster Confession of Faith. Under the section of assurance, section 3, it says this, This infallible assurance does not so belong to the essence of faith, but that a true believer may wait long and conflict with many difficulties before he be a partaker of it. Yet being enabled by the Spirit to know the things which are freely given to him of God, he may without extraordinary revelation in the right use of ordinary means attain unto it. So our confession makes it clear as well as the Word of God that you can wait a very long time before the Lord grants you an assurance of faith. Assurance that you actually belong to Him. You may have been through a season of your life, and you might be in a season of your life even now, when you are doubting your salvation. Am I really converted? Do I really know Christ? Did I really believe on Him enough? Was my faith sufficient? And many times you pull out your faith, and you look at your faith, and you say, is my faith sufficient? The problem is, is you're pulling out your faith and looking at faith when you need to be looking to Christ, looking to Him. And looking to his work and what he has accomplished. How long have you been waiting for this assurance? Have you endured much difficulty trying to partake of it? And is it possible even today to have assurance of faith? Are you like this man that I know that struggled for years to come to an assurance of faith because of bad teaching in the church that he was in? Maybe you're there today. And beloved, I submit to you today that verse number 7 presents to us, verse number 37 presents to us some unshakable truths that will give you assurance of faith if you would but give diligence to them. And these are the three things I want to share with you today. Consider with me today the believer's unshakable assurance of salvation. We see this, first of all, that this unshakable assurance is anchored in eternal election. All that the Father giveth me. And this unshakable assurance is also anchored in effectual grace. They shall come to me. And this unshakable assurance is anchored in final perseverance. Him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. So now consider with me the first thing we want to speak of. It is that this unshakable assurance is anchored in eternal election. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. Here we have the grand and glorious doctrine of sovereign election. And this is the very bedrock of a believer's assurance of grace and assurance of salvation. Many a person has come to this doctrine with much confusion. Some try to take the sovereign aspect out of election and place it upon man. You say, well, what do you mean? What are you trying to say? What I mean is simply this, that many make election nothing more than man's choice of God for salvation. In other words, you could say it this way, and I've heard this preached in churches that I was raised in. They said this, God voted for me, the devil voted against me, and it is I that broke the tie. My friend, that is unscriptural. God didn't vote for you, and the devil didn't vote against you, and it was not you that broke the tie. But that is many people's understanding of the doctrine of election. They say that God based His choice upon foreseen faith. What they mean is simply this, that God looked down the corridors of time, and as He looked down the corridors of time, He saw you and me. And he saw you and I believing in him. And so those that believed that he saw would believe, he chose them to everlasting life. There's one problem with that. No man can believe. 
because we are dead in trespasses and sin. We are radically depraved. We are radically separated. The sin of Adam and Eve in the garden. When Adam partook of the fruit, the Bible said that immediately his eyes were opened and he knew that he was naked. In Genesis chapter number 6, the Bible says the heart of man was evil continually. And that includes both the heart, mind, soul, and will of man. Every part of man was totally affected by sin. So if we properly understand total depravity of man, we would know that if God looks down the corridors of time and chooses those that choose Him, it is an impossibility. The only thing that God would foresee in that sense is sinners constantly rejecting the gospel. This is absurdity. But this places man above the Creator and makes man sovereign over God. If we really believe that God made His eternal choice based upon your choice of Him, guess what that does? It makes you sovereign over God. It means that God has based all of His decisions regarding the salvation and the events that would take place in history based upon the decision of a creature and not Himself. My friend, we are firm believers, and the Scripture makes it very clear that God has ordained whatsoever cometh to pass, and that includes your salvation. Are we really to believe that God made His choices based upon His creation's choice? May it never be. We want to hold the view that most magnifies God's grace and God's sovereign might. So as we consider this unshakable assurance anchored in eternal election, I want you to see in verse number 37, first of all under that, the persons of election. Notice it says, all that the Father giveth me. Notice there are two persons there. You find the Father and the Son. The me there is a reference to Christ. Eternal election is the root of of, uh, excuse me, uh, the eternal election we see here is the root. This root is not to be found in man, but it is to be found in God. The Father and the Son are intimately involved in the salvation of the sinner's soul. They are intimately evolved, uh, involved. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. God's plan in redeeming sinners was included in His eternal decree. Now that might mean nothing to you. What do we mean, God's decree? The Westminster Shorter Catechism defines it this way. God's eternal decree is God's eternal purpose according to the counsel of His will, whereby for His own glory He hath foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. Now my friend, that is a great comfort. To understand that there's nothing that happens in my life, in your life, in the history of this world, in our country, that has not been divinely orchestrated by the hand of the sovereign God. Everything that comes our way and in our country has been sifted, as it were, through the hands of providence. That's why I don't get discouraged. Oh, I might not like the results of what is going to happen in the next few years in our country, but I know that the sovereign God of heaven has allowed it to take place and He has a purpose that you and I cannot see, that He is a working in and through it. God is working all things for good to those that love Him and are the called according to His purpose. And whatsoever God has ordained, He has also ordained the salvation of His people. Election as it regards the Father and the Son is inseparably also tied to the covenant of redemption. Now what is the covenant of redemption? The covenant of redemption is the agreement made between the members of the Trinity in order to bring us salvation. So Scripture makes it very clear that the plan of redemption was included in God's eternal decree or eternal purpose. God's love for you, He has set upon you, guess what, from all of eternity. God has chosen to set His love upon you. And He did it in eternity past in the covenant of redemption when all the members of the God had only known to God came together before the world even existed. Before anything was brought into existence, God in the Godhead, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and a covenant of redemption came together and devised salvation's plan only in the way that God could understand. 
According as He hath chosen us in Him, the Bible says, before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1.4. Because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation. Within this triune God there is a division to how this work of redemption is actually accomplished. You must understand that all three members of the Godhead are intimately involved in you coming to faith in Jesus Christ, this eternal election. The Father is the originator of redemption. The Son is the executor of redemption. And it is the Spirit that is the applier of redemption. And these glorious realities can only be a result of an agreement between the persons of the Godhead. There was an agreement in the eternity past that God would send His Son into the world to die for sinners upon the cross. In eternity past, not only to God was this covenant established. So God's plan of redemption was not only eternal, but it was covenantal. Christ had come to accomplish what had been decreed before the world began. Christ was coming to accomplish the will of His Father and also to fulfill all His covenant obligations. We read in the following verses in John 6, 38-40, For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of Him that sent me, and this is the Father's will which has sent me, that of all which He hath given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of Him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son, and believeth on Him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. So those who are elected are part of God's eternal plan of redemption. And you must understand that those that are elected are not elect, elected based upon any foreseen merit within them. Which brings me now to the subjects of election. We have just discussed the persons of election, the Father and the Son. Now we see the objects or the subjects of that election. And notice verse 37 says, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. So who does the Father give the Son? Well, the answer to that is contained in the first word, all. Now, the word all here is not to be understood as every person that ever lived. There are some that believe that Jesus Christ, when He went to Golgotha's hill and He hung between heaven and earth for you and for me, that He literally died for every person that would ever live on planet earth. That He actually became the propitiation for all people that would ever live. That Jesus actually died and paid for the sin debt of every single person. And only paid their sin debt in full. But He also became the propitiation for their sin. He became the great wrath deflector of their sin. My friend, if you understand all that that entails, if Jesus did that for every single person, then inevitably we would have to be universalist. We would have to believe that every person was going to heaven if Jesus paid the sin debt for every single person that would ever live, as well as deterring the wrath of God and drinking up the wrath of God for them. We would have to be universalist. But the Scripture clearly teaches that that is not the case. The Bible says in John chapter number 10, I give my life for the sheep. He said, I lay down my life for my friends. Jesus came according to the will of God, not to do His own will, but to accomplish the will of the Father. And it was to die for the people that the Father had given to Him. You see, the elect are the love gift to the Son. We have been given to the Son. And Jesus died to purchase and to draw us one day to Himself. So the word all here is qualified by the next phrase, shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I shall in no wise cast out. So the all are the ones that come to him. So in other words, the all are the elect. So if you are here saved today, why are you the subject of the sovereign election? If you're saved and you know God's grace, why are you the subject of it? Why are you elected? Why is it that some people have sat through church 
And brothers and sisters have sat through church and they sat in the same pew and one is now converted and the other wants nothing to do with God. They've heard the same gospel message. They've heard the same preaching of Christ. They went to the same events. But one is converted and the other is not. Why is that the case? Some say, well, it's based upon foreseeing good within one. God looked at down the corners of time and saw that you were going to be a good person and He chose you based upon your goodness. Well, the problem with that is the Bible says that there is none good. No, not one. There is none that doeth good. There is none good on earth. Some say, well, I believe the gospel and I'm the elect because I was just more inclined to believe and chose not to reject the gospel like others. No, my friend, you are dead in sin. You, like everyone else, Hated God. Wanted nothing to do with Him. You rejected the gospel. You rejected the truth. And you did not come to Christ based upon your own will. It's not of Him that willeth, nor of Him that runneth. But it is of God that showeth mercy. You say, well, I'm one of the elect because my parents are Christians. Well, that doesn't qualify you to be elect. You're not an elect. You're, you're not saved just because your parents are believers or your grandparents are believers. You say, well, I'm a Christian because I was raised in a Christian country. That makes me Christian. And that is not true. Uh, and by the way, we are far from being a Christian country today. So you have no crutch on which to stand and say, this is why I was chosen of God. You have no crutch to stand on. So why are you elected to life eternal? And others with equal opportunity... And even greater opportunities still sit in spiritual darkness. You know, it's amazing to me that there are people that uh, are missionaries that go into some of the most remote parts of the world and they share the gospel with people in remote areas. I think about some missionaries, a friend I have in North Korea, and I think about missionaries that I know that go to Nepal and other places that are dangerous to go to, and they reach people that have never heard of the name of Jesus, and yet they believe, and yet there are people that sit here in South Carolina that have so much opportunity to hear the gospel, and yet they are still outside of Christ. Why is it that God sent a missionary into the wilderness of Nepal to save a sinner while another person in a great place of opportunity dies without Christ? Why is it that that person was elect and the other person was not? Why was it that out of the mass of humanity in Noah's day, why was it that Noah alone found grace in the eyes of the Lord? That always astounded me. God killed millions of others, but Noah and his family alone found grace. Why Noah? Why not choose another person? Another person could have had grace in the eyes of the Lord. Why did God choose Abraham to establish his everlasting covenant with? A man that was a heathen called out of the Ur of the Chaldees. Why could not have God chosen another person to establish his everlasting covenant with, but he chose Abraham? Why was Rahab spared? from the destruction of her city and no other family. Why? The answer to this is found in God Himself. When He said in Romans 9.15, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Therefore hath He mercy upon whom He will have mercy, and whom He will He hardeneth. God is sovereign, and God is righteous, and God is free to exercise His will over the affairs of men. For salvation to be all of grace, it must be all of God. Some see this as unfair on God's part. Why does God choose one and reject the other? That is totally unfair. And we have heard this objection, no doubt. However, man doesn't truly want fair, do they? Fairness would put us all where we deserve to be. And where is that? Hell. That's what we deserve. If God was fair, He would give us what we deserve. And what we deserve is hell. So we don't want God to be fair. We don't want Him to be fair because we would spend eternity separated from Him. It's amazing not that men go to hell, but it's amazing that anyone goes to heaven. That is an amazing thing. Some say, is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. 
Thou wilt then say unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Nay, but O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? When men bring these accusations against God, who are they to reply back to God and say, God, why have you done this? It's not God free to do with His creation whatsoever He desires. It's not God the sovereign of the universe that we read about in Isaiah chapter number 40 that sits upon the circle of the earth that meted out heaven with the span. And who are we to give counsel to God and tell God what He will do with His own people? God is free to do whatsoever He pleases to accomplish His sovereign purpose. As a believer, God's gracious choice leaves us humbled in the dust. That's where we need to be. Think about it. If you are here and you know Christ is your Savior, you should be humbled in the dust because it was not because of anything that God saw in you. God did not look at you and say, what a wonderful asset to my kingdom. This person is so wonderful. They have a great personality and they'll be a great soul winner and a great preacher and a great evangelist and a great missionary, a great giver to the church. So I'm going to choose this one. No, God doesn't work that way. The Bible said that He chose us according to His own purpose. In Ephesians chapter number 1, the Bible makes it clear that He chose us according to His eternal purpose and His own plan and His own providence. That we might be to the praise of His glory and His grace. You know why God chose you and I that were hell-deserving sinners? In order that one day we might be presented as trophies before the very angels of God. We are the very wonder of the universe. You understand that? The Bible says the angels desire to look into the things that you and I partake of. They wonder in amazement that God would choose to save hell-deserving sinners because God provided no Savior for the fallen angels. He gave them no opportunity, but He has given you and I an opportunity to be reconciled to God. And to this the angels wonder at, and they will wonder at throughout all of eternity when one day you and I are glorified forever with God in glory. Far be it from the believer's mind that He was chosen because there was something special in Him that others did not have, knowing that God has set His love upon thee from all of eternity. The Father has planned your redemption. The Son has purchased your redemption. The Spirit has applied that redemption. All the while you are a hell-deserving and sin-loving rebel. God has set the stage for your redemption. The triune God has planned your salvation from all of eternity. When I think about the plan and how God worked in my own life and bringing me to an area where there were people that would share with me the gospel and God orchestrating steps and you can look at your own life and how God just brought you exactly where you needed to be, where someone came to you to speak to you the gospel at the right time. That was not by accident. That was by God's divine providence calling you to Himself. This was God working. You are the relentless object of God's elective grace. And it's not because of something in you, but of the divine purpose of God you are pursued. And it is understanding your eternal election that will provide unshakable assurance of salvation. To know that you are in the mind of God from all of eternity. You have ever been before God's mind. You have ever been on the Son's heart. It is for you that Jesus died. It is for you that the Spirit has applied redemption to. This should provide unshakable assurance to your salvation that you are chosen of God. Peter speaking about add to your faith, faith, virtue, all these things. He says, wherefore the rather brethren, in 2 Peter 1.10, give diligence, that is an imperative, to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things you will never fall. That is, you will never fall from your assurance. You will never fall. This, that you will never fall from your assurance. Have you made your election sure? Do you know that you belong to God today? Do you know that you're one of the elect of God? Have you made that sure? The second thing I want you to see is not only this unshakable assurance is anchored in eternal election, but this unshakable assurance is anchored in effectual grace. 
How is it that God brings to pass those that God has chosen? How does he bring that to pass and bring them to faith in Jesus Christ? Notice that he says in verse 37, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. That is glorious words. Those are words that should cause your heart to sing. Those are words that should cause you to leap with joy and thanksgiving to God. The ones that have been given to the Son shall come to the Son. That is a promise by God. Those who are the objects of eternal election will most certainly come to Christ. There is not a single one whom the Father has given as a love gift to the Son that will ever be lost. That number is so fixed that no more will be added to it, and none shall be lost. There will be no missing elect people in heaven. Everyone for whom the Son died will find their way to heaven. Everyone. The Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 3, section 4, says, These angels and men thus predestined and foreordained are particularly and unchangeably designed, and their number so certain and definite that it cannot be either increased or diminished. This is certain. The Bible makes it very certain. All that the Father gives to the Son will come to the Son. That's not a single one that will be left out. All the elect, the ones that have been given from the Father as a love gift to the Son, those elect people will come to Christ. They shall come to me. And it is this grace that is overcoming grace, because it overcomes our depravity. It overcomes our inability. You see, you and I in our lost fallen condition are unable to come to Christ. Some people say, well, you know, God has a spark of goodness in all men, and God gives all men, uh, the Arminians call it prevenient grace, that God gives all men this ability to believe the gospel, that God in grace moves upon all mankind and gives them an ability to believe uh, the gospel when it is presented to them. But that's not what the Scripture teaches, is it? We are dead in trespasses and sin. No man can come to me, Jesus said in John 6, 44. No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. You know what's amazing as we stand here and we preach the Bible? We are commanding men to do something they cannot do. Jesus said, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But Jesus said, no one can come to me. Isn't that amazing that Jesus tells us to command people to do something they cannot do? They cannot come unless the Spirit of God opens up their understanding. Unless like Lydia, the God of heaven, opens up their heart to receive the things that are spoken. We are preaching a message that man cannot believe in and of themselves outside of the power of the Holy Spirit moving upon their heart. What this is referred to theologically is known as effectual calling or irresistible grace. What does that mean? What it means is this, is that when one receives the divine summons to come to Christ for salvation, prompted by the Spirit, they will come. In other words, the king gets what he demands. When the king says, come, guess what happens? They come. When God spoke to Lazarus through Christ, when Jesus spoke to Lazarus, as he was there lying in the tomb, and Lazarus is dead... And Jesus speaks, and he says, Lazarus, come forth. Guess what happened? Lazarus came forth. Now I want to submit to you a question. Could Lazarus have rejected that? Could he have said, no, Lord, I like where I am. I'm going to remain where I am. No, when the Son speaks, he gets what he demands. When Jesus said, come forth, they will come forth. And this is precisely spiritually what happened when you and I were converted to Christ. The Son, as it were, spoke to us through the prompting of the Spirit, come to me. And guess what happened? We came. And we were made willing, the Bible said, in the day of His power. Some people have the idea that we as Calvinists believe that people just come to Jesus and they come kicking and screaming to Christ even though they don't want to come. Oh no, every person that comes to Christ is willing. They love Him. They want to embrace Him. And they have been made willing in the day of His power. Psalm 110 and verse number 3. 
This is why we call it effective grace. This call effectively brings about His decree. How do we come to Him? Well, we come by the work of the Spirit of God. We come by the work of the Spirit of God. But although, here's Spurgeon's quote, but although we do not know it, there must always be a previous motion of the Spirit in our heart before there will be a motion of our heart towards Him. There must be a previous motion of the Spirit in our heart before there will be a motion of our heart towards Him. That is, we love Him because He first loved us. We see this clearly with the life of Saul, do we not? He was a man that was not seeking God, a man that was seeking the destruction of the church, that was persecuting the church and putting them to death. And we read that as he's on the way to Damascus, that suddenly sovereign grace without any previous seeking comes to him. Suddenly the light from heaven shines. This is a picture of effectual grace that arrests the heart and turns it to Christ. Do you remember that day in your life when effectual grace arrested your heart and turned you to Christ? Do you remember the day when you recognized that you were separated from God, that you were on your way to hell and God moved upon you and showed you your sinful condition and He also showed you Christ and you wanted nothing but Him? Some say that this miracle that took place in Saul's life would never be repeated again. But I submit to you, this is a miracle that takes place every day. Every day God in sovereign grace comes down and arrests the hearts of His people and brings them to faith in Jesus Christ all over this world. He not only sought you, but He brought you to Himself. God by effectual calling is bringing to pass in time what He has decreed from all of eternity. What unshakable assurances should give the believer that you have been drawn by the power of the Spirit to Christ. You are the object, as I said, of God's elective grace, His relentless love. He is pursuing you. He has loved you from all of eternity. And He is now bringing to pass this love for you in time by calling you to Himself. This should bring great assurance to you. My friend, if you're a Christian and you are believing on Christ, and you have been brought to Him by effectual grace, this should bring great assurance to your heart, the eternal purpose of God being played out in time. And those whom God chose, He ensures that they will be brought to faith. But now I want to transition to our next thought. But what will this work bring about? Will this work end simply there? with just bringing them to faith? Will God keep those whom He has chosen from eternity and effectually called to Himself? Or is it man's responsibility to keep what God began by the work of the Spirit? Or in other words, do you keep yourself saved or does God keep you saved? Now there are some that struggle with this. They say, well, yeah, God chose me in eternity past. He brought me to salvation in time. Now it's my responsibility to ensure that ultimately I will get to heaven. Well, that's faulty thinking. Because what God has planned and what God has ordained, He will certainly bring to pass. Consider with me, lastly, this unshakable assurance is anchored in final perseverance. Notice with me again, verse 37 In him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. What wonderful words. Here we are given a promise that shines brighter than the harvest moon on a cloudless night. This is the promise of final perseverance or the preservation of the saints. That which God began, He will complete. Our Lord and God did not simply plan our salvation from eternity and bring that choice to pass in time only to leave the rest to you. God, God did not give you the ball, as it were, and said, now it's your responsibility to ensure that you make it to heaven. True believers will persevere to the end because of the radical change wrought by the Holy Spirit. So what is perseverance, final perseverance? What we mean is that there has been such a radical change wrought in the heart of a true believer in Christ. The Bible says in Ezekiel 36, verse 26 and 27, that a new heart I will give you. 
and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and ye shall keep my judgments and do them. My friend, when God regenerates you, when God transforms you from the inside out, He removes that wicked heart and implants a new one. He implants the Spirit within you, and He now causes you to walk in His statutes and to keep His commandments and do do them. This is not perfect obedience, but it is consistent obedience. This is the result of regeneration and the implanting of the Spirit in the heart of a person. And this should encourage us and bring us great assurance that God is sanctifying His people. He that planned the work and wrought the work is the same that will continue the work of redemption. God is in the process of sanctifying you, and you feel it, don't you? You know how you feel it? It's, you feel the sanctification process in this way when you sin. And you know that you have messed up, and you get that dirty, crummy feeling inside. That's the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And you know the Holy Spirit is dealing with your heart about sin. That is a sanctifying influence. And God will not allow you as a believer to continue in that sin. Why? Because we've tried it, haven't we? We've tried to continue in our sin. And what happens? God takes us to the woodshed, doesn't He? And He corrects us. And His correction is not pleasant. But we endure chastening. Because if we do not endure chastening, the Bible says that we are illegitimate sons. And we prove that we do not belong to Him. And we recognize that this chastening that God gives us is not like the chastening of our parents like we are familiar with. But the Bible says that God chastens us in order that we might be partakers of His holiness. In order that we might be more conformed to the image of Christ. God has set His love upon you from all of eternity. He has chosen you. He has brought you to faith in time through effectual calling. And He is right now in the process of conforming you to the image of Jesus Christ one day to finally be like Him at that resurrection on the last day when this flesh finally disappears and we receive a new body and we are forever with the Lord totally redeemed body, soul, and spirit forever with the Lord. And you and I can be confident of this very thing, that He which hath begun a good work in you will perform it under the day of Jesus Christ. What God starts, He finishes. He initiated your salvation and He will consummate it. Take courage today from the preacher Solomon. Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 3.14, I know that whatsoever God doeth, it shall be forever. And my friend, that includes your salvation. God has begun your salvation, and if God begin it, it's forever. God did not redeem you so that you could just live a life of spiritual defeatism. God chose you and called you and filled you so that you might be the expression of Christ here upon earth. No longer I, but Christ. We see the perseverance of the saints inevitably also implies the preservation of the saints. That God will preserve His people. I shared this quote with you the other week from Dr. R.C. Sproul. He said, My confidence in my preservation is not in my ability to persevere. My confidence rests in the power of Christ to sustain me with His grace, and by the power of His intercession, He is going to bring us safely home. It is the persevering, it is the preserving activity of God that supports His saints' perseverance. Here are strong words. Notice with me again in verse 37. Strong words of our Savior, I will in no wise cast you out. This is actually in the Greek here a strong double negative. This is emphasizing very strongly that it is impossible for any that have come to Christ in full reliance of faith to ever be cast away. So why can we not be cast away as believers? Well, number one, we cannot be cast away as believers because the new birth cannot be reversed or undone. You can never be unborn, can you? Just as you were born physically, that birth can never be undone. And just as you've been born spiritually, that can never be undone. Secondly, because the work of regeneration is so radical that its effects cannot be erased. 
Thirdly, because of the covenant faithfulness of God. God is faithful to keep all His promises to His people. Fourth, because of the promises of preservation that God would preserve us. And you can never be cast away because of the mediation of Christ. Christ is in heaven praying for you. And remember what He said to Peter when uh, He said, Peter, Satan has desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. But don't worry, I prayed for thee that thy faith fail not, and when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. The Lord Jesus Christ is in heaven praying for his people. And my friend, as Jesus prays for you and intercedes for you, you can mark it down. He is praying for your final perseverance, that you will finally get to meet him in heaven. And what Jesus prays for, he gets. He is not praying empty and vain prayers in heaven. As he prays for you and prays for your final arrival to heaven, guess what? It will take place because he always gets for what he asks. This doctrine brings about unshakable assurance to the believer. What a relief to know that what God has planned and brought to pass in time, he will now complete it. Salvation, as Jonah said, is of the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. is a complete work of God from beginning all the way to end. Guess what? There is nothing you did as a work of your own to even come to faith in Jesus Christ. There is nothing that you did. Even believing the gospel was nothing that you could even do. You must understand you could not even believe outside of the work of God in your own heart. The Bible said that it is, that it is Him that gives us the ability to believe. It is Him that grants us faith. It is Him that grants us repentance of the truth. So this completing of the work is entirely dependent upon Him. It is Him that is able to keep you from falling, to present you faultless. It is Him that wills and works within you. It is God's eternal plan to have you as His own prized possession. So in conclusion, we have seen this unshakable assurance is anchored in eternal election. It is anchored in effectual grace. And it is anchored in final perseverance. And these doctrines, we must understand, are not pegs on which we hang our theological hats and show how much we know about God. But these are pegs in which we hang our very soul. These are truths that should warm the heart then more, more than warm the mind. Many times as we look at these doctrines, we, we, we want to find someone that's an Arminian or someone that's not a Calvinist, and we want to argue with them about these points. But these are not points of argument. These are points that bring assurance and hope to the heart of a believer that we hang our souls upon. Though these be deep and difficult doctrines, they be doctrines that comfort the soul. These doctrines are the balm from the great position that if applied will bring assurance of faith to your heart. So two years later, after speaking to that same retired state trooper by his uh, wood stove in the basement, that trooper came to assurance of faith. How? He came to a proper understanding of God's sovereign grace. He came to understand the doctrines of grace. He came to understand that God has loved him from all of eternity and that he called him in time and that the work that God began he will complete and bring to fruition and finally bring him to heaven. How was this attained? Through the proper use of ordinary means he attained it. So what do you mean? He was reading the word. He was praying. He was partaking of the Lord's table. He was coming to church hearing the Bible preached. And through the proper use of ordinary means, God brought assurance to his heart as he pursued it with great diligence. God filled his heart with peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. And the same can be a reality for you today if you are lacking assurance. If you are lacking assurance, don't throw in the towel and say that it will never be mine. Don't do that. It can be yours today. Be diligent and do not let go except He bless you with assurance. Pursue it diligently. Make your calling and election sure. The fruit of these doctrines of grace is assurance. Brethren, know these things, for in knowing them you have assurance of life. You have every reason now to sing and to shout for joy. For you are eternally loved by an eternal God. From start to finish, God has planned your redemption. So you can sing as the hymn writer said, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine, heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of His Spirit, washed in His blood, perfect submission, 
All is at rest. Is that not where we want to be? All is at rest. I and my Savior am happy and blessed, watching and waiting, looking above, filled with His goodness, lost in His love. May God bless His Word to our hearts this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the Word of God today. We thank You for the truths of Holy Scripture. God, we pray that You'd stamp these truths upon our hearts and our minds. God, I pray there be any here that is truly burdened down with lack of assurance, that God, that they would pursue it. And God, that they might be aware that God, they are not the only ones that have struggled with this. There are some, even as the confession has said, that tarry long and wait long for this assurance to come. And they do so with much difficulty and trial in their heart and their mind. But God, you have said that God, through the right use of means, God, this can be attained. And Scripture makes it very clear that God, we can have assurance of faith. If we make our calling and election sure, we will never fall from that assurance. So God, we pray, grant it. God, I pray there be anyone outside of Christ that would even listen to this in the future. That, oh God, you would show them their dire need of Christ. That there is nothing they can do to save themselves. It is entirely the work of the sovereign God of heaven. So God, be with us until we meet again. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. I want us to sing a hymn of dismissal. I want us to sing a blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. And we will just sing it uh, a cappella. Uh, hymn number 408. We'll just sing the first and the last if you would stand as we sing hymn number 408. We'll sing the first and the last of Blessed Assurance a cappella. Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a